Hey, welcome back to and Rocks. It's Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're here in our respective bunkers getting ready for what we hope is conference season. Yeah, I mean, there, there are some conferences. Dev Intercession is going to go ahead just fine. And right. I went to KCDC a few weeks ago uh, in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. But traveling further afield is a little tricky. Actually, next week I'm going to the Poland uh, .NET Developer Days conference. Interesting. But, uh, you know, it's all about the COVIDs these days, right? Sure. So what are the COVID vaccination rules in the country you're going to? Right. Poland seems to be following the EU, and the EU right now accepts vaccinated Canadians. Mm. Even the weird vaccination that we've got, that I've got, which is a mix of both AstraZeneca and Moderna. Interesting. So they're good. Wow. I think they would look at me with as if I had three heads if I had a hybrid vaccination over here well i you know i've learned to wear my clothing differently so you can't see the other two heads <laughs> very good hey let's get things rolling with a little thing we call better know framework all right dude there you go. well today we're not calling it better know framework we're calling it better know an experimental nintendo switch emulator written in c-sharp what? That's right. Oh, no. It's, a Switch emulator. Yeah, so this is show 1763. So if you go to 1763.pwop.me, it'll take you to something I can't pronounce. Ryujinx. R-Y-U-J-I-N-X. Yeah, Ryujinx I would go for. Or Ryujinx. 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 It's yeah. an open source Nintendo Switch emulator uh, created by GDK Chan and written in C Sharp. I mean, all you're going to want to do is play Zelda. Yeah, it it aims at providing excellent accuracy and performance, a user-friendly interface, and consistent builds. It's available on GitHub. And I'm, you don't have a Switch. You're not a video game player. Uh, I, you know, I play stupid video games. I don't play, like, mm. high-tech ones. Although, you know, every once in a while, I'll go over to a friend's house, and they're playing something that just looks beautiful. And I'll say, ooh, can I just watch that for a bit? You know? Yeah. You know, you know what? I, I, the number of games I have not bought because the Let's Play gave me everything I wanted from a game. Yeah. I got to watch the story yeah. and have somebody else curse while they were doing it. Exactly. If I'm going to expend that much emotional energy, I'm going to talk to my family. Right. <laughs> that's very fair. But that's cool. You know, it's just you talk about what can C Sharp do for you. Right. Apparently, emulate a Nintendo Switch. Right. So do you have a Switch? I do not. I'm not a handheld game guy. I am part of the PC master race. Right. Uh, I do not uh, tolerate these console gaming wonks. What are these consoles you speak of? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, you know, we have, yeah, of course, there's an Xbox in the house, but it's for, for running Plex and uh, ah. and um, media, you know, uh, HBO Max and stuff like that. Right. It's on the it's in the on the TV room where, you know, I hardly set foot. Right. But uh, these plays these days, I pay a little Kerbal Space program. And I am a beta tester for a game called Hard Space Ships Shipbreaker, which is a very zen. <laughs> you almost game. said that wrong. Yeah, I almost said a shipbreaker. <laughs> I don't know what you were thinking. I said shipbreaker, uh, dismantling old spacecraft with wow. wonky tools in a dystopian universe, which is enjoyable. That is right up your alley. 
yeah, as I damage my stay suit and I'm gradually suffocating, it says carbon, carbon dioxide levels are elevated. You may damage your equipment. You will be subject to fines as you're dying. And then, you know, you're you're brought back as a clone, charged $150,000 for being cloned, and you go back to See, work. I liked all those Infocoms infocom games yeah. all those really kind of stupid story-based games that's what you like yeah exactly and the graphics were terrible but it was fun uh, yeah well you had to have it was like reading playing a book right it was yeah. in your own head your vision of it uh oh, good appreciation of that anyway great one it's very cool the nintendo switch thank you and uh who's talking to us today Hey, grabbed a comment off a of show 1533, which is one we did with Vishwas a couple of years ago, talking about the Microsoft business application platform, which stimulated a lot of conversation and I think is going to be orthogonal to the conversation we have today. Mm -hmm. And I only say that because I like the word orthogonal. Orthogonal. Uh, and uh, the running dev said, I mean, at least three years ago, he said, good show, guys. It's always Good to find out about all the offerings that Microsoft has, which certainly is what we count on Vishwas for every time. Right. I wanted to mention that Power BI, as one of those hidden gems that now competes with much bigger tools like Tableau. I've used it recently, and it's constantly getting better, allowing business users to make some awesome visualizations. And I've been talking about Power BI over on the run-as side of the world, where episode 800 is about to publish. And, uh, and certainly, it's a it is... Well, it's part of Teams, or to, sorry, it's part of your Air M365 suite, and it's if you're not using it, you're missing out. Like it's just a tremendously powerful tool, and it's you you already own it. You know, odds are because it's in your it's with your M365 stuff for your company. So you may, you start looking at these visualization tools, they can be really expensive, and you end up using Excel, and you shouldn't do that. <laughs> you should be using Power BI. Uh, so running dev, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music Code Buy is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music Code Buy, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music Code Buy. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet, but don't use tweet light because that thing just sucks. Use power tweet. Use power tweet. It's like power BI, only less data analytics. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Let me introduce Vishwas for what? The 10th time? 11th? 12th? 11th? I think he gets a free submarine sandwich at this Absolutely. Point. So Vishwas Lele serves as CTO at Applied Information Sciences, or AIS. And he's also a Microsoft Azure MVP. And I would venture to say he's even more of a generalist than I am which is saying something. I, my, I dip my toes in a lot of technologies, and it always seems that whenever Vishwas comes on the show, we're talking about something else. We get smarter. I, I'll give you some context here. I mean, we first started talking to him about SharePoint. But I, when Azure first came out, and we had a lot of people hand-waving about Azure. We did a couple of shows like that. And I think I even said to you out loud, it's like, I'm not doing any more Azure shows mm -hmm. until somebody brings me a project in Azure. Mm -hmm. Right. Show me an app. I don't want to hear about what it can do. Show me what you are doing. You know who brought that app? Fish was. In 2009, 2009, it was not shiny in 2009. But yeah, no, he brought the app and that show's called Real World Azure. Welcome back, Vishwas. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Richard. Good to see you, friend. I can't wait to see what you've uh, been working on in the last year. Yeah, uh, I am um, here to talk about I talked to Richard about this. You know, my last year has been spent working on um, 
the data side of things. And um, coming from a DevOps and a developer background, I actually like to call it uh, a code-first analytics. You know, don't use this moniker with the business users. You know, they would never understand what is code-first mm-hmm. analytics. But, you yeah. know, that's the mindset I've brought to uh, the data work that I was thrown into for the last 12 months. And I thought it would be a good topic for us to talk about. Sure. It's very cool, dude. So, yeah, because you're not you're not the typical DBA type either, right? Like. No shrines to data here. You've always been building stuff. So I like that code first for data, except that every DBA immediately got chills. Because <laughs> our experience with that has been stuff like nHibernate and EF Core. And boy, you, your tools write bad SQL. Yeah, DBAs don't like developers, do they? Well, In general. You, you do horrible things to the databases, right? Like my you, metric is like, a DBA. Wait a minute. You're the DBA and I'm the developer. Is that how we're playing this little You drama? started this. You you started this. This was that this was this is it's on all your you, fault. This, this is on you, Carl. I never said you guys hey, but my measure is the stability, reliability, consistency of data. The biggest hazard in my life is a developer. <laughs> Everybody else is only querying data. The only people that mess up data. Developers writing applications. All right. Poorly. Dyslexic developers of the world untie. Sorry, Vishwas, we didn't mean to hijack your uh, show here. No, 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 no. I, I, I think it's fair. Um, maybe uh, the code first analytics monitor, moniker that I used, uh, certainly not uh, a disrespect to the DBAs, but I, I was going in a slightly different direction. Uh, I don't know if you want me to jump right in into the topic mm-hmm. or not, but. Uh, Sure. Absolutely. This was really how I got thrown into this project last September, where uh, somebody was moving a large data estate, uh, you know, almost a petabyte data estate, moving into to Azure uh, from some cloud that shall remain remain unnamed here, because we want to focus on the technology and not about the politics of this. So we were moving this data into Azure, and, and it was the goal behind that was. This is a large enterprise, and and the things I'm about to say will appeal to any enterprise. Large enterprise, hundreds of data sources. These are mission-critical applications. Trying to bring this data into a common analytics platform, and you know, data warehouses have been around for a long time. We know that. But what cloud has engendered yeah. is so the cloud-powered data warehouses, where you have a data warehouse as a service. And, and we can go through some of the key characteristics of what cloud has done to these data warehouses. So as you take these customers to this modern data warehouse as a service on the cloud, and there are many of them today, if you don't change your stance in how you are profiling the data, how you're loading the data, how you're analyzing the data, and if you don't bring the same level of automation maturity as DevOps engineers have been doing on the on the code side. It's really hard to provide that value to your end users. So that's essentially the theme. That's what I said, code first. And I really wanted to use code first for all of the DevOps engineers and uh, developers out there, because as they look to enable uh, this data, which is ultimately what we are all after, right? We have taken these applications and moved them to the cloud. Great, great step. We have we have made that easy. But what is the ultimate step? The ultimate step is all of the, the data that is coming out of these applications 
can we harmonize this data and make better decisions? That's what we are all after. And when you're saying data, are you talking about SQL Server? Are you talking about databases per se? Or? I'm talking about two things, right, Richard? So one is, so let's say, take, take a financial services company. You, you might have a number of uh, applications uh, you might have the credit application, you might have the claims application, you know, on and on and on. These are large systems. Mm -hmm. Some of them may be on SQL Server, others may be on Oracle, others may be using some, uh, you know, mainframe database because the system of record is a mainframe. These systems have all been developed at different times, points in time. They don't integrate well. Now you're trying to harmonize this data into a cloud-based data warehouse. And I'm specifically talking... Synapse, Snowflake, BigQuery, uh, all of those, right? So how do you take all of that data that is in disparate silos, application systems, or, and how do you bring it together in an incremental manner, iteratively, so that you can draw value out of that? So, I Yeah, and, and I appreciate, back in the old days, and I did this, I got very well paid to do this, was we built a data warehouse, and you built ingestion systems for all these different data sources. And you sort of had to round the rough edges off of all the data or square it up so that it could all be loaded. Uh, and we did a lot of planning because you were spending several million dollars of your customer's money to build out that custom infrastructure specifically for that purpose. Like that's all it did was pull that data together or organize it so that you could do efficient querying on it. But the cloud kind of eliminates a lot of those steps, doesn't the cloud, it? The uh, cloud, I would say, does not eliminate some of those steps. Let, let's just talk about, uh, if I can just take a step back here, just talk about, uh, so data warehouses, as you correctly pointed out, Richard, have been around for decades, right? We've all, uh, I don't consider myself an expert on Kimball or Inman methodologies, but there are many of your listeners who would just say, hey, I've been doing this for decades. You've, you've read the books. I read Everybody the books. Everybody has a copy of those books. And uh, I'll come to the point that you made about ingestion in a second, because, you know, if you, if you looked at the Kimball methodology, you spend 40, 50% of time just ingesting the data, transforming the data. Probably more. More, Probably more. yeah. That's 80? Right. Yeah. Cleaning? Organizing? Are you kidding? That, that became, like, that the, became job. the job. Yeah, that was, you know, you get one on one of those projects and, you know, you have good job security going for a few years, for sure. So uh, yeah. we, we will go into that in a moment. Let's just take a step back and say, what have cloud data warehouses done to this whole model, right? So, so number one, we, mm -hmm. we are seeing this, this advent of uh, essentially shared nothing MPP style architecture, which is massively parallel processing architecture. So the idea, uh, we can't go into any detail with any of these topics, right now. So I'll just quickly mention them, but then use them to uh, move to the second point. So we now in the cloud have a way of separating out storage and compute with these large data warehouses. So if you want to run an mm -hmm. analytics query really quickly, you can scale up the compute, you continue to pay for storage, uh, but then mm -hmm. you're only paying for the compute that you're using. That's sort of the fundamental shift that has happened. Now, MPP was around in on-premises, but the elasticity and MPPs together is what is powering the cloud. The other important concept to understand is 
we spent a lot of time trying to do the capacity planning and then and then figuring out which data warehouse technology to use and then buying all the hardware and things like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, the next step of that was a PaaS enablement of that. Well, I can give you this data warehouse cluster that you can enable as a PaaS service. What we are seeing today is data warehouse is a SaaS service, right? If you go to Snowflake, all you need is you basically create what is known as an Azure private link. So you're not navigating the internet to go reach them. They spin up an instance of the cluster. They will set up a private link endpoint, which will then get connected to your virtual network. So all the data is going over a private peer network into Snowflake. They reach out to your key vault and then encrypt your data. So that's what made it possible for customers to say, you know, I feel comfortable in sharing my data with you guys. Right. Just imagine building a data warehouse, which is not in your virtual network. Well, that's now possible with the advent of the things that I talked about, private link, customer managed keys. So we are reaching a point in data warehousing where all you need to do is you, you uh, go to a, a data warehouses service, establish the hybrid connectivity, provide them customer managed keys and ship them your data. And now you can go adjust the compute and you can run the queries you want. So you've really flattened that. So MPP, shared nothing architecture. MPP being massively parallel processing. Hmm. Right. And then you have the, of course, you know, the things like the columnar format, which is more efficient for analytics purposes. In fact, in-memory columnar format, all of those innovations that have come together into the data warehousing technology. Now, as you take look at taking advantage of that, uh, what are the things that you need to do from a planning ingestion classification perspective so that you can move at the speed at which these data warehouses are moving? That's essentially the point I'm trying to make. So let's let's go back to now with that background, let's go back to the comment that Richard that you had earlier, which is, hey, so you have you know three SQL server databases, a few Oracle databases, few IBM DB2, maybe a mainframe database. Yeah. How, how do you get this data yeah. and how do you flatten the time? Well, along with the data warehouse as a service, you're seeing on the horizon things like, you know, companies like Fivetran and Streamsets, which are offering you this ability to do data ingestion as a service, right? So they have a connectors for every platform. Mm -hmm. You give them the source location. Mm -hmm. You give them your destination warehouse location. And what they can do is they can migrate your data. And of course, migrating the data is one part, right? Yeah, when you said stream sets, I was thinking this is for my ongoing consumption, the daily load, right? Although not to digress, I do want to know how you moved a, pay, a petabyte of data into Azure, because I just don't think you'd want to upload that. That seems like a very that large That is a number. very large number. Uh, so yeah, let, let's, let's take a, uh, let's go down that path of moving a petabyte. Uh, we didn't have to, in this the project that I'm on, I'm not saying we just moved one petabyte of data overnight, but you raise a very interesting point. We all have to deal with data gravity, uh, which is which is the notion of, yeah. you know, your applications tend to get closer and closer to data, no matter what you're doing. But what is happening, Richard, now is these cloud providers are pretty well connected to each other, right? So you, you have... Uh, you know, depending mm -hmm. on the size of the data that you're talking about moving, there may be different uh, ways of moving the data. 
you might want to set up some sort of a replication. You might want to set up some data share. And in, in some cases, it might be actually just beneficial to FedEx uh, your data into a multi-terabyte disk and send it. Yeah, no, they, yeah, we because about Azure has the data box service. I was just hoping you guys actually use the petabyte one because that's that it's that big block that moves on wheels. It's like that. What I like about that is it feels like a petabyte. It's like it's a something that's, that could crush your toes. Right. That's the difference. Yeah, between a petabyte you know, and a terabyte. Data boxes are great because, you know, they at some point, the limiting factor in migrating this data becomes how quickly is the device able to write, read the data from the storage. Right. So Databox has, yeah. has you know, obviously a high I.O. Uh, setup, which is an expensive device. They rent it to you. You copy the data and you ship it to them. But I, yeah. I will say this, that, mm. uh, you know, even things like uh, uh, and I'll put this in the show notes. There is some project out there that Microsoft put out there, uh, a variation of AZ copy where at the back plane, uh, these cloud providers are well connected, you know, at, at, at a network level, right? And today, the speeds that you are getting across these clouds, uh, you can actually transfer a petabyte of data within two or three days if you wanted to, right? Right. Uh, so now you're getting into you can beat physical shipping, which you didn't can beat, used to be the case. That is true. You can beat physical shipping from that perspective because, you know, those, those uh, data box and solutions are into um, terabyte ranges, and we are talking about a petabyte range. So, so mm-hmm. you know, you guys are talking about petabytes and massively parallel processing. And in my world, I do ISP, which is insignificantly serial processing. Like you guys are, <laughs> you guys are talking way beyond. I mean, I've never had to work on a on a project that had so much data that it was just impossible to use. Uh, you know, standard methodologies and techniques. Just caught, yeah, cut and paste or file transfer, right? Yeah. And then suddenly you're confronted with even terabytes or yeah. get tricky. Yep. Yeah. Right. But, and, and, and petabytes are just not that rare anymore. And so, and they're just, you know, you've keep, it's too easy to say Terra and then Peta and think you're fine. It's like, that's a thousand more, dude. Yeah. A thousand more. It's not a little more. It's a thousand. Yeah. You don't more. just go into a tight loop and, and report records. I can't imagine. Yeah, no, you, you can't, you can't do that. And, you, and the same thing is like, and the way you parse stuff, the way you chat, it's like, mm. hey, we should do a count. You know, it's the easiest thing in the world. It's like, oh, well, how many records is that? Well, I'll just do a count. Well, bye. See ya. Yeah. It'll take a while because it's physically just reading the disk of everything that's in that file to count those records. That's going to be a few hours. It's just a lot. Yeah. So, uh, but, um, Carl, uh, you, your point is well taken. We, we should extract ourselves from the conversation with just a petabyte transfer. We, we just got into that because... No, no, yeah. I'm... It's, 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 just it's, a, it's one of those hard one problems of the hard, that people trivialize. And it's just like... Well, it just you, occurs you know. to me that it's like not something that I have experience with. And um, maybe a lot of other people have, but I, it's just not in my wheelhouse. But that's why I'm, I'm sort of like apologizing No, 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 not at all. Seat. I think there's a great point. I, I don't want to alienate people who are listening and saying, hey, what Vishwas is talking about is only a petabyte scale warehouse. No, I'm not talking about just that. We, we were just commenting on the side that, uh, Richard, your point, that the, the bandwidth, uh, the pattern that I talked about, you know, these cloud providers uh, have pretty good connectivity. And if not, you can, you know, even do things like mm-hmm. Equinix, right, which is you can rent a rent essentially a rack and have a one hop to one, maybe Azure, one hop to, to AWS 
and then you know rent uh, some gear and then move data across in that manner. So there are patterns that are available. But I, I want to get back into uh, the discussion, if I can, please, to uh, into the the data mm-hmm. warehousing part uh, because. The patterns that I'm talking about apply to a terabyte scale uh, warehouse just as they apply to a larger scale. So we're talking about, uh, so on one hand, we have established that we have these high elasticity, massively parallel processing, and then essentially a serverless model. You run a query, you want to run the query faster, you give it more compute, and then you shut down the compute. So you have these benefits. But in order to take advantage of these benefits, you have to do other things, which which I'll just quickly point out. So one is, you're talking about dozens of data sources. These data sources are not documented well at all, right? What does column 23 in table 624 mean from an analytics perspective? Nobody has kept track of what five versus six on that column means, right? So in order to derive value, you need to be able to have tools. You might get lucky and you might have good documentation and might have good data architects who can tell you exactly, but often you don't. And in that- No, no, I often have good documentation that happens to be wrong. Like it's very well written and detailed and it's four years out of date. And and you and you, you may or may not realize that. And so, you know, the first thing that happens when I got good docs and start working on that problem is make sure this is correct. Now go study the database. like. You're hit on, I think, a huge thing, which is these data stores are big and they have a lot of columns and they've been modified many times over years. And you've got to validate you've that got, you've got what you think you've got. Absolutely. You and, and this is where, uh, you know, let's start talking automation there, right? This is where the data profiling becomes important. Mm-hmm. Oh, is this column important for me? Oh, 83% of the values are null or 83% of the time the values fall in this range. Okay, now I can go ask someone. Uh, are these columns PII data? Mm-hmm. So this is where, again, automation comes in. Microsoft launched a cognitive service called the PII detector service, right? Could you, because just having an analyst go through two, 300 tables multiplied by the number of columns and figuring out what is what is going to be a very difficult task. Well, and 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 time consuming. Like these are, these are slow processes. And and what's interesting about the, P, the you know, personally identifiable information, the PII problem is, and suddenly you're looking at people's personal information, and that's already a conflict. Mm. Like, you you need to know where it is, and preferably stay away from it, or at least you know there's a different treatment for it. Absolutely. So the the automation starts from profiling, figuring out. Um, and then, of course, there is this importance, uh, and, and Microsoft certainly is doing that with the, the, the purview tool. How do I take the data sets across these applications and I actually register them in a catalog of some sort where somebody from the organization can walk up to and say, can you at least give me the meaning of this field? What are the data sets? What versioning of these data sets? When did we change them last? So once again, a concept very much uh, within the wheelhouse of developers where we are versioning these data sets in some sort of a catalog. It's funny because I've been talking about Azure Purview on the IT side of the fence, on on run as for data governance. But it's great to hear like this is a tool devs should be using if they're responsible for analytics work because it is about seeing the whole data set. Absolutely. And and Richard, you raised such an important point. Uh, Over the last year, and and we were talking before the show started that uh, the show has accorded me this 
opportunity over the last 10, 11 years to, you know, spend some time thinking about what had happened and then share with your listeners. So as I was preparing for the show yeah. this morning, I woke up a little earlier because I wanted to spend a couple of hours thinking about this. And one of the important lessons for me in this data project is that unless you're doing a joint development with the business partners, project is not going to succeed, not going right. to succeed. So I actually ended mm-hmm. up looking back, spending less time on, on sort of, you know, once we had these patterns laid out, less time on sort of uh, the data part itself, but more time on, oh, if we version control this data set and if we put this in a data catalog, is this helpful to you guys, Mr. Business Partner or, or, or Ms. Business Partner? Mm-hmm. That's that's going to be an important part. So you start out with cataloging the data sources, you start out with profiling these data sources, and then you use uh, ingestion as a service to move the data. And, and here's one important difference. And uh, we used to do e- ETL before, as you both know, extract the data, transform it. And then we used to have this UI tools, which would drag and drop this integer field concatenated with this integer field becomes some composite key in my target system. And I had these visual designers to do that. Mm-hmm. So now we are moving towards a model, and it's not now, we've been doing this for some time, moving towards an EL, uh, ELT model, which which is extract and load and then transform. So why, why is that important? Because now right. that we have this massively parallel processing enabled data warehouses, which have so much compute available to them, you flatten the time required to move the data into this. What you do is you essentially move the data into some sort of a staging area in a warehouse. And these warehouse technologies have grown better. They, they can deal with things like JSON, XML, and semi-structured data quite well as part of the SQL syntax, hmm. right? So these are the Azure data lakes. So in this case, I'm talking about dropping the data directly into a a SQL powered data warehouse. You could certainly drop it in a data lake, right? And then run some sort of a Mm -hmm. Spark uh, query on top of that. That's one. What I was going for earlier uh, is you drop the data into a a warehouse and, and which 70s programming language is still prevalent and growing? Well, I won't say grown. Or you mean exactly. So it's not going anywhere. Cobalt's not going anywhere either. But it is certainly not growing. At least we hope it's not growing. But SQL on the other hand, 70s programming language, every time people come around and say, okay, SQL is done and we have a better method, SQL comes right back. So these warehouses are all powered by SQL engine, uh, just as Synapse SQL pool is, or as Snowflake is, or BigQuery is. So I was talking about dumping the data into a staging area and then using the compute associated with the warehouse. See, we we did ETL because we did not want to slow down the queries that were running on the warehouse, right? That's why we did the transformation outside. But now we can actually run the transformation right inside the warehouse because we have unlimited seemingly unlimited capacity to do that. And data and computer sort of call, you know, together, so low latency. So now we have uh, a way to transform this data. 
And, and this is where uh, tools like DBT have come in, an open source tool, which stands for database tool, simple. I think of it as a Terraform for data engineers. So, so now wow. you can write, okay. so um, uh, for those who are not familiar with DBT, think of DBT uh, as a code first way of writing SQL. So, so it's a SQL. On top of that, there's a templating engine called the Jing, based on Jinga, which is just templating language. Mm -hmm. and, and you can yeah. now write all of your transformation code using DBT, which is a CLI tool. And now let me just connect the full dots and I'll pause, I promise. So, so DBT, and there are many tools like this, is an open source tool which allows you to write your SQL uh, like you're writing, but you have uh, any other programming language, you can version control it. And then imagine connecting it to an ADO pipeline of some sort. Uh, so now, as the data is coming in from the source systems, and we talked about uh, historic loads versus incremental loads, as the data is coming in, you are running an ADO pipeline to bring the data uh, into the warehouse and doing the transformation all like a continuous integration, continuous deployment process. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's managed code that's continuously operating the data. It, it, it's, it's very much a stream mindset rather than a batch mindset, I think. That is correct. Because uh, more and more data scientists are relying on your data warehouse to, to, to run their machine learning models. So they don't like latency, right? If you are going to be running a machine learning model, so somebody comes in and files a claim against something, and you want to figure out if the claim is a valid claim or a questionable claim, you want to in real time be able to mm -hmm. apply a machine learning model to that. And you want to be able to train on the data as uh, late as possible. So you know, if you are somebody who has been filing 12 claims in the last three days, uh, that has got to raise somebody's concerned somewhere that, you know, this might be a questionable claim. So if this is a bad job, which does not get loaded for 24 or 48 hours, now I've lost the ability mm -hmm. to learn from that data and apply it when the call comes in, when you're filing a claim. So you're absolutely right. You want to be able to load these warehouses as quickly as possible in a low latent, latent manner as, as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, this gets more... Maybe, Folks often ask for that sort of real-time data thing. They don't really mean it because usually that data is not reconcilable or correct. Mm -hmm. But the closer you get to, you know, not just everyday loads or once a week loads, but routine, you know, s loads that are somewhat behind real time. Yeah. yeah you, if you want to sound fancy, you can say near real time. <laughs> near real time. And, and Vishwas, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. You know, keeping your development toolbox current is key to creating today's highly scalable applications. With Oracle Cloud, you get cloud-native microservices that leverage containers, Kubernetes, and serverless technologies. And right now, you can try a free self-guided lab to learn how to build microservices on Oracle Cloud infrastructure at your own pace. Visit oracle.com slash .NET rocks. That's oracle.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. Hey, Carl here. So have you ever browsed in incognito mode? Well, think about this. 
In incognito mode, like the Chrome browser itself, is a Google product. And Google has made a fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company in California where they accused it of secretly collecting user data. And Google's defense is incognito does not mean invisible. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? ExpressVPN. Turns out that even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked, and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. One of these data points is your IP address, which data harvesters use to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server, and your IP address is masked. That makes it really hard for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. No matter what device you're using, phone, laptop, smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com .net and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash D-O-T-N-E-T, expressvpn.com slash dot net. And we're back. It's .net Rocks. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Hey, man. And here's our friend Vishwas Lele. And we're talking a little bit about sort of the modern data warehouse, you know, the, 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 how the cloud has changed large-scale analytics. And I, and I appreciate, you know, one of the problems I always had with the old ETL process was that we made compromises for efficiency. We cut off data, essentially, to fit it into models based on the analytics we thought we were going to do uh, to save space, to save time, because it was all about query performance, going back to you know Kimball's sort of mantra around this, that it was important to work sort of at the speed of thought, to follow lines of intuition with analytics. And so you, stay, you did a lot of work to stage the data so it could be queried quickly. And then the clouds just kind of stomp that problem out. You just throw more compute at it and it will be quick. So in that sense, I kind of like the idea that I do minimal touch on the data in ingestion. Bring it in because you don't know what kind of queries you're going to do with it long term. And the modern tools, a lot of these smart mining tools and so forth, they find the queries for you, or am I exaggerating? I mean, I don't know how much you, you've gone into that sort of the machine yeah, learning and, side and, of data uh, analytics. So certainly, you you want to bring as much data. So one constant thing that I heard from our business partners was, don't ask me which data elements to bring in, right? Please bring in everything. Right. I want it all. I want, I want it all. And there is one other thing yeah. that I would like to to add here, which is, the modeling aspects of things, right? So we, we talked about Kimball, uh, star mm -hmm. schema, dimensional models, and things like that, right? Uh, what I ended up using in this project, and I just wanted to share uh, with your listeners here as well. So there is another modeling, method, modeling methodology called data vault modeling. And uh, it builds on, as it's as they say, it stands on the shoulders of giants. So it, it, it takes the, the, the key benefits of Kimball and Inman methodologies. But what I found really appealing about the Data Vault uh, methodology and the current version is Data Vault 2.0 is it is designed to be an agile modeling approach. So it is designed to be because people are building new systems, 
right? You cannot take a snapshot of your source systems and say, leave me alone for six months. I'm going to design a beautiful data warehouse for you. And then tell me all about the changes later, right? New systems are coming online. Acquisitions and mergers are happening. So how do you model the data in a manner that is incremental and that is loosely coupled? So uh, I think you have had Yuval on the show uh, many years ago, and Yuval, Yuval likes to talk about something very important, right? When people are doing a decomposition of the design, Yuval likes to talk about volatility-based decomposition. So he has this vault yeah. diagram where you know you should be decomposing your applications based on how quickly are they going to change. And what you do is, you know, that picture is worth a thousand words, right? The things that are highly likely to change, put them in a vault because even if they change constantly, they're not impacting. The blast radius of those things is sort of limited to the vault, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I found with data vault methodology is it tries to do the same thing where it tries to keep the relationship by design loosely coupled, right? So it, it, it is based on things like hubs and links and satellites, which we don't have time to get into, but those are the three concepts. But the relationships, to give you a concrete example, the relationships are many to many, and those relationships are based on the data entities themselves. These are not foreign key relationships that two weeks later you have to have a change and then has a ripple effect across things. So Data Vault methodology was very helpful. That was the point. It was the rendezvous point, if you will, to bring the business users and say, hey, we have gotten all the data that you wanted. Okay, we've gotten all the data. And now, because these systems were developed at different points in time, the natural keys between these systems don't match up. So you might have a claim system, which has a claim ID. You might have a policy system, they were not designed at the same time, so they don't have a good uh, uh, natural mapping between these two systems. So what, what Data Vault methodology allows you to do is bring the business users and say, can we apply a business rule that brings these systems together? And once again, you can encode these business rules using what I talked about, a DBT code first mechanism. Remember, all the transformation is happening in the data warehouse now. So you are coding up essentially these dbt files along with your business users and most business users have come to the realization that they need to know some sql they won't be sql gurus but they have to know some sql that is sort of the the lingua franca of business so you put them in the same table as the engineers you show them all of the data that has been brought in quickly you tell them which elements you want and you essentially write these transformation scripts to harmonize this data and load it. Now you have a composite view of the data. Right. And and that and and it doesn't take long for that to be generated. Like it that's just right. appears. That's right. So that like, is the it, powerful, powerful part. And and uh, not to forget, um, you know, in any CI/CD process, the reason we are comfortable with deploying something into production is we have taken the time to write quality tests, which give us the confidence that we can do the deployment, right? Same thing applies here. And another tool that open source tool tool comes into mind, Soda SQL, right? Uh, What you do is at every step of the pipeline, 
you have tests that tell you, uh, you were expecting, oh, it's a public holiday. On a public holiday, we expect 15% of the traffic. Oh, but we are, we are seeing 5% of the traffic. Right. There's an anomalous condition here. So you have checks at every step of the way from picking up the data from the source systems into the staging area after the transformation, you are constantly running these quality tests, which give you the confidence that you can mm-hmm. constantly deploy to your warehouse uh, with a measure of confidence. You know, the things that we have learned uh, over time with decade of CICD uh, behind us. So sort of applying the same concepts of quality to data. Yeah, before the load happens, like you're, you're evaluating the data, make sure the data sets are complete rather than load them. Like it's only when it gets through those gates that now, okay, this data should come in. It looks right. Or at least have a stop to say, this looks odd. If you think it's okay, then you tell me. Otherwise, I'm, right. I'm, I'm and, not going to load uh, this. Uh, what, what is interesting is uh, one other sort of nugget from this year was, so we run these, you know, people started writing these tests. Business users started writing these tests. And, you know, this could be behavioral tests mm-hmm. that, uh, the credit limit cannot be below this if the customer's age is this, right? Something like that. You know, this is a behavior test. So they started right. writing the test. Oh, great. We run that as part of ADO pipeline. So as we are loading the data across these various stages of your data warehouse, we are running your test. But guys, what about observability of these tests, right? Uh, this, The results of these tests should not be just available to IT. They should be available to business users, right? They should be able to say, hey, alert me if these behavioral tests are failing at a rate below a certain, higher than a certain threshold. How do you make that data observable? Again, tools that we all have as developers and DevOps engineers, but have not been brought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but not in the hands of the users. Exactly. So are you you building dashboards to surface that sort of thing? Like, I'm kind of excited at the idea that they're going to start cleaning up their own data. That is exactly right. That gives them a visibility to start dealing with that data themselves. And you could do multiple things, right? You could could generate tests like Soda SQL kinds of tests or or DBT kinds of tests. But then what we are thinking about Mm -hmm. is to making things observable is to pump that data into Azure Monitor and let them set alerts, give them dashboards and things like that, right? So we have a we have a great pane of glass for providing that and that monitoring. So once again, taking advantage of Azure Monitor-like capabilities and then uh, including it with the data pipeline is, is one way to go. Right. Well, I'm thinking of this from a whole business process side of things. Like you, you set out rules as a manager for the way you want it, you want business interactions to happen, and you expect it to be reflected in the data. And then it's not. And and often it's like you leave it on the then the DBAs and the data analysts to fix that. You know, the the social security number being a classic one. It's like, well, every customer ha- or you know every account has to have a social security number. And pretty quickly, the folks on the line needing to complete that transaction, whether that may be, if they don't have a number, they fabricate one. You know, suddenly you get a whole lot of nine numbers and you're like, ah. but, and they, and it takes a while for that trickle back to management. Yeah. You put that requirement in place, but you didn't, you didn't allow for the fact that some people don't have them or it's missing or whatever that may be, yet they still want to complete the transaction. And so they've now sullied the data, Absolutely, you know, it's dirty data. What do you want to do about that? Do you want to delete those things? I don't think you do. Like, like in some ways, this is a way to sort of push back on quote unquote business rules 
and have them actually see the consequences of those roles uh, when it gets out of the field. That's right. I mean, there, there are a couple of techniques there. You know, you can tokenize that data, of course, or you can apply masking policies, right? So uh, I have a business user who needs to see some data. So within the context of that business users, those columns are unmasked, but for everybody else, those columns are masked. You know, those those are all techniques available. Right. Uh, the, the last thing I want to add uh, quickly here, and this will be interesting because you were talking about Excel just uh, at the beginning of the show, Richard. For the client, right? right? And, for and the this client. Is, I, I want to leave your yes. listeners with one important change that is happening, and, and hopefully we can get some feedback from folks here. So what happens is you've loaded the warehouse, you've modeled the data, you've done the data quality checks, you've created a few reports, but then when it gets to really the rubber meets the road, people are pulling down the data into Excel and then doing the transformation of the data and then sharing it with their team, right? I mean, that's that's happening as prevalent as anything else. And what, what we are seeing there and I've tried to incorporate that is, if you you can certainly do that, right? You can transform the data in Excel, but but now you've lost the lineage of data, right? How did you come up with that Excel workbook? What transformations did you do? Nobody else knows. Looks right. like a great workbook, but I have no way of validating it, right? I don't know if yeah, it's correct. I don't know if it's correct. And those cells are you editable. You could have done anything possible. <laughs> so this is where yeah. an important change that is happening. These data warehouses have unlimited capacity, right? They have very cool capabilities like a zero copy clone, which means I can, without having to move the data or pay for that data, I can clone the production data or a subset of production data so that I can run a query against that directly, right? It, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a, so we have techniques right. like that here. So what we are thinking, uh, and, and in fact, enabling right now, is the business users can come in, we show them the models that were generated by for them, but if they do want to do any transformation, and remember we talked about the DBT-based transformation, writing the post first SQL, we've gotten them to a point where they express the transformation that they want using four lines of SQL code, right? That becomes a macro. Hmm. So that transformation is captured as part of the data lineage here and put into source control as well. Right. So now I might be doing some ad hoc analysis, but I'm doing it in the form of four or five SQL macros that I wrote. And now somebody else can come behind and say, yeah, I like what you did. Or if my transformation becomes really popular, then I can take my transformation and then baseline it with some sort of a model so that everybody in the organization can benefit from it. Yeah. Well, uh, you also find there are folks that are talented at creating those visualizations, like re- or that reorganization of data. And so you want those shared around because a lot of people, folks struggle with those. And this is where stuff goes really, really wrong, where you start m- twisting the data in a yeah. way that makes the results inaccurate. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, they, you know, a lot of the conversations we're having these days on the Power BI side is that where does my my data expert live he lives in that transformation layer to present to the power bi folks already transformed data that is correct that is included all of the variations that the database concealed you know that there was three different tax tables and there was a, a refunds table over here and it's like if you miss that stuff you're showing incorrect totals 
So we'll we'll create a transformation layer pre-done for you called sales that, that has that's all a great stuff point. Included. Yes. And and you know your expert should live in the base model that is powering the Power BI query, right? So that everybody else can benefit yeah. from it. Uh, yeah, well, and that's the thing. Once upon a time, doing that baseline analytics, being the Power BI person was the important part. Uh, and now it's so much more user-friendly uh, and the domain expertise is a more powerful exactly. aspect to that. It's like, let the domain experts play with Power BI. You can serve them really well sitting in that mid-tier between the data stores the, and the loading processes and the visible transforms for Power BI. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm, it's a darn shame we don't get along <laughs> with Uh And yeah, I mean, I teased right at the beginning here about don't use Excel, use Power BI, right? Like, because even Microsoft gave in. Once upon a time, Excel was a spreadsheet and so many people were doing data analytics in it. They added a whole data analytics section to Power to, to, to Excel. It's like, okay, that's what you're doing anyway. I guess we'll do it with you. But it's they, it's confusing the tool. I Do it in Power BI. That's what Power BI that's, does. And better, yeah. And better. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a place to leave it. Vishwas, thanks very much for joining us. But before we let you go, I want to know what's in your inbox. What are you working on right now? So in my inbox, uh, the, the topic that I just talked about extensively, data, and then the thing that we didn't get a chance to talk to is all of the ML use cases in the enterprise. That's what I'm... And I'm talking about, you know, so Google, Microsoft, Amazon, they've done a great job of uh, giving us all prepackaged machine learning models, whether it is cognitive services or or forms uh, recognizer and all of that, right? But a, a large yeah. swath of problems in the enterprise are custom models that we need to get the data ready for. And then we have to look at what can we do to apply these machine learning techniques to enable those scenarios. So, so that's... So, once we have set up the warehouse, the next journey is how can we make that process seamless? Awesome. Yeah, it's a whole other show, I would think. Like that, that, that aspect of the next step here, once you're sort of in this position with all your data in one place, is let's let the machine learning model start exploring it for us and discovering associations of data we didn't know about. But what we used to call data mining, I think now, is falling firmly into the ML. Mining was more in the statistical area of the work and, and, and sort of uh, yeah. ML is more predictive. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's an awful lot of stats in ML too, right? Like as soon as you take, as soon as you take the covers off a little bit, you're like, wow, this looks an awful <laughs> lot like true. math. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Vishwas, thanks very much. Always fun to chat with yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, thanks, Vishwas. Thank you. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one 
recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a